Well, uh, obviously, we live in troubled times. I don't need to tell you all that. You, you kind of figured that out. We've never been living in a non-troubled time. I don't know of any period of history where it's just been uh, just perfect because we live in a fallen world, but these are definitely some challenging times. And when Howard asked me to speak a couple weeks, or about, let's see, the week last week, I think it was, or maybe 10 days ago, I don't know. That was the week of, uh, you know, the racial tension, and then that was the, this was the week we had, of course, the other incident in France. So, you know, it's just one week after the other, things just pile up. So I kind of formed a message in my mind as soon as that, the last week, or the week before when, you know, the tension of the, uh, the shootings and everything, I was beginning to formulate a message in my mind with the text. So, uh, you know, and then this thing happened this week, so hopefully we can tie in a little bit of these things together. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's definitely, you know, these are challenging times. But uh, I'd like to say a prayer uh, quickly for, you know, the sermon also for France really quickly. Lord, we just uh, thank you for this day and thank you, God, for the opportunity to be here. Uh, Lord, obviously, I only desire that uh, people hear from you today. That's all I care about. And we pray, God, your word would speak to their hearts. I pray they'd have ears to hear, eyes to see. I pray, God, you give them uh, spiritual attentiveness. We know, God, that uh, our attention spans are uh, challenged nonstop by uh, Pokemon and uh, other things in our culture. So how about, uh, you know, you, uh, we pray, God, especially, God, that you would help us today. And we pray for the people of France. You give them healing. And we pray, God, that you would just really intervene into that situation, God, and it doesn't, as it doesn't make any sense, God, we pray that you provide, uh, you know, the message of Yeshua there through your servants, and uh, we pray that you just heal that area, and we pray this all in Yeshua's name, amen. Okay, well, we read from the uh, Brick Hadashah today, John 16, and actually we're going to go one chapter over today to John 17, so that's the text we're going to be in today. Now, when we come to John 17, I just want to ask a quick question. How many people have read through the entire book of John before? I want to see a show of hands today. Okay, so you're not going to ask me to read chapters 1 to 21 really quickly, right? But you have a little background here about the book of John, and that will play into as we play a role as we go into John 17. So as we come to John 17, this has sometimes been called the high priestly prayer, I don't really think that necessarily matches. I, some scholars say, well, actually, this is really the Lord's Prayer, because in Matthew 6, when Yeshua prays the Our Father who art in heaven prayer, that's called the Disciples' Prayer, and so the appropriate title for John 17 is really the Lord's Prayer. So we're just going to go ahead and stick with this as one of the prayers of the Lord, right, because Yeshua is the Lord. And one thing for sure, we know that when Yeshua prays, we need to pay attention to what he's praying about. And I think as we go through here, we'll see some things that have great relevance to us and some of the issues of what we're dealing with in troubled times, okay? Now, when we read the book of John, if you've ever read through John, you know, we can't flip around all the different verses and chapters, but uh, in John's gospel, it's interesting there is a sending theme, and what I mean by that is you see the unique relationship throughout the book of John between Avinu, the father, Yeshua, the son, and of course, the Ruach, the spirit, and it's interesting that as we look at John that, uh, of course, Yeshua is the sent one, 
and the father, Avinu, is the sender. And we see all throughout the book of John that they live in very close relationship with each other. It's, it's a bond that's beyond anything we can probably totally fathom. But we see, of course, the sent one, who's Yeshua, is fully committed to the sender, the father, right? We know that the sent one, Yeshua, does the sender's will. We know that the sent one does the works of the father in the book of John. We know the sent one bears witness to the sender, who's the father. And we know that uh, they work in perfect, harmonious relationship with each other. So that's what we want to keep in mind as we read here through John 17, this commitment between the sent one, who's Yeshua, and the father, Avinu, okay? Let's read here verses 1 uh, uh, one through 4 here. Okay, so it says here, These things Yeshua spoke, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Avinu, the Father is come, Father, the hour is come, glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you have given him authority all, over all mankind, that to all whom you have given him, he might give eternal life. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God and Yeshua the Messiah, whom you've sent. I glorify thee on the earth and have accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And now glorify me together with you, Father, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Okay, let's, let's stop there for a minute. So here we have Yeshua praying, and he lifts up his eyes. And now the context of this chapter is, you know, it's getting close right to Yeshua's death, where he's going to be uh, crucified. And of course, uh, this is right before that. So we're coming up to John 18, the way the, uh, the, the book of John is laid out. So he's praying this prayer, and he comes to the Father. And of course, he talks about, in verse 1 here, he talks about how he wants the Son to uh, be glorified, because the Son's role is to glorify the Father. So he says, Father, the hours come, glorify the Son, may glorify you. And he talks about, in verse 2, even as you have given him authority over all mankind, tell me you've given him that they may give eternal life. And in verse 3, he talks about this as eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in the Messiah whom you've sent. Okay, well, it's very interesting, you know, this topic of eternal life. Now, when I was a new believer, as most of us uh, know, if you've been around long enough, you generally are told the good news is about eternal life, which is true. But, you know, we think of eternal life, I think that probably for most of us like myself, we think it's about, you know, when you die, you go to heaven, right? That, that is eternal life. Well, we know that God is eternal, is an eternal being, of course. God does not die. He lives forever. God, God has always existed. But, you know, when Yeshua talks here about having this eternal life, he says here very clearly in verse 3, this is not so much about duration. You know, and he says in verse 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Yeshua whom you've sent. He's saying here eternal life is more about a quality of life. Okay, it's not so much about how long it is or necessarily when we die, although it does, it's part of when we die. Uh, this is a quality of life that is offered to us that starts today in this life. So whenever someone comes to faith in the Messiah, when they truly believe and they're truly regenerated, they're born again, uh, you know, we begin to partake of this new life, right, in Messiah 
And we come to, that begins to happen, of course, when we come to really have the knowledge. We come to know who Yeshua is. So this is a quality of life that starts now, right, in this life. That's why Yeshua says in John 10, he talks about having the abundant life, right? This is a, a, the abundant life. This is what God wants us to have. Now, we may say to ourselves, well, you know, I don't experience this quality of life all the time. It seems like I have challenges. It seems like I have circumstances that are overwhelming, and life's just hard, and we know it is. Well, that's because, as Howard has been preaching through First John, we still have to wrestle with the same three issues all throughout this life. We have our flesh, we have the adversary of our souls, and we have the world, right? And so those things try to uh, work against this quality that we're supposed to be having, this quality of life, right? But in the midst of those three things, we always should know and remember that we are rooted in the Messiah, we're identified in him, and this eternal life is started for us no matter what's going on in this life now. That's why really, you know, when I uh, tell people about the good news, the uh, message of Yeshua, I want them to understand that this message is not just about when you die. It's not that that doesn't matter. But this message is about the here and now. You know, this is a quality of life that can start right now, and they need to understand that. Now, it's interesting, you know, in John's gospel, the reason is he uses eternal life is you notice in the other gospels, like the Matthew, uh, Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, the theme, especially Matthew's gospel, is the reign of God, right? The rule of God or the kingdom of God. But in John's gospel, that terminology is not used. So John is using really what kingdom life is or the kingdom of God theme is really what eternal life is to John. That's why he emphasizes so much about uh, the issue of eternal life in the book of John. Very interesting indeed. Okay, so Yeshua says here in verse 4, he says, I have glorified you on the earth, accomplishing the work which you have given me to do. Now, that's interesting because he's almost making it sound like I've already done it. I mean, I've already accomplished the work, but we know that what Yeshua is saying here is something that's going to be happening in the future. One chapter over and three chapters as we go on, the issue of his death and resurrection. So while he hasn't totally, that hasn't taken place yet, he's saying really this is done. You know, I have accomplished this work that you've asked me to do. So although it's future, he's really saying in this prayer that I have already accomplished this. Very interesting, Okay. Now, he says here in uh, verse 5, he says here, now, now glorify you with me together, which thyself the Father with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And then he says in verse 6, I manifested thy name to the men who have you given me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept thy word and they have come to know that everything you've given me is from you for the words which you gave me. I given to them, and they received them, and truly understood I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. Now here, of course, in verse 6 and 7, Yeshua is talking about how, verse 5 and 6, he's talking about how he obviously was with the Father before the foundation of the world, as much as we may not be able to totally grasp that, but he certainly was already with the Father before the foundation of the world, okay? He was uh, pre-existent, okay? And so he says here, that uh, he's going to, um, I'm sorry, let's go to verse 8. He says here, it's very interesting in verse 8, he says here, for the words which you have given me, I have given to them, and they receive them, 
and truly understood that I came forth and they believed that you sent me. Now, it's very interesting through John's gospel that there's many passages, and I wrote, I, I typed a couple up because we can't really flip back and forth between all of them, but there's several verses in John's gospel where Yeshua says, I can only speak the words the Father's given me. The, I can only speak the words that the sender has given to the Son to speak. He says here in John uh, chapter 12, he says here in verses 49 to 50, you don't have to turn there, says here, for I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life, therefore the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Then in John 14, 10, he says here, do not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The words I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Now, turn with me, uh, well, actually, no, don't go there. I'm going to just go ahead and tell you, because we've got to go back to something else in the Tanakh in a second. You know, in uh, Deuteronomy 18, it's very interesting that God tells Moses that he's going to lift up a prophet, just like Moses, and he says that he will not speak, he'll only speak the words that I give to him, right? I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak my words. Well, it's very interesting that all throughout the book of John that Yeshua says, I can only speak the words that the Father gives me to speak. That's because one of the themes of John's gospel is Yeshua is the prophet like Moses, right? He is the greater prophet. He speaks the words of God. So when he says here in verse 8, he says here, for the words you gave me, that is an ongoing theme throughout the book of John. Yeshua can only speak the words that God gives him to speak. He is in submission to the Father. Very interesting indeed. Now, I want to go to verse uh, 6, because I don't want to just skip over that. But when he says here, back to verse 6, when he says here, I manifested thy name to the men who you gave me out of the world. They were yours and yours were mine, that they keep thy word. We don't want to just skip over that issue of the name. Now, Go back to, uh, I, keep your finger in John 17 and go to Isaiah 48 for a minute. Isaiah chapter, no, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 42, Isaiah 42, I apologize, Isaiah 42, well, that was close, Isaiah chapter 42, as you keep your finger in John 17. Now, it's interesting in Isaiah 42 that, as we just read about Yeshua giving the name uh, of God to the disciples, he said, I, I manifested thy name to them. That in Isaiah 42, 8, it says here, God says, I am the Lord, this is my that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. You know, the name, we talk about the name in Jewish thought, that of course represents who God is, right? And, you know, why God says, in a way, really, I won't give my name to anybody else. It's interesting in John 17 that Yeshua is saying that I'm going to give God's name to you, that he has given the name to Yeshua. He's giving it to the disciples. Now, go back to Exodus 23. Go back into the Torah here to Exodus chapter 23. It's very interesting. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 23, and go to verse towards the end of the chapter, verses, let's see here, let me go here, give me a second here, oh yeah, okay, verse 20 of Exodus 23, it says here, verse 20 of Exodus 23, 
It says here, Behold, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Be on your guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious towards him, for he will not pardon your transgression since my name is in him. For if you will truly obey his voice and do not and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you to the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Pezzarites, and the Canaanites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. You know, it's very interesting that in this verse that God says his name is in this angel. Now, what he's really saying is my essence is in the angel of the Lord. My very being is inside this angel, okay? Because to have the name of the Lord in you is to have God's very essence in you. So when you go back to John 17, and Yeshua says here that he's giving the disciples his name, God's name, he says here in verse 6, once again, in verse 6 of John 17, he says, I manifested thy name to the men who you have given me out of the world, Yeshua is given the very essence of God. He's manifesting the essence of God to them. And that's because he is the, uh, the Lord, right? He's not just an average person. That God, while he will not give his name to anybody else, he gives it to Yeshua. Yeshua is representing the name of God, everything that God is, okay? And so he's passing that on to uh, his disciples. Now, he says here in verse uh, 9 through... 12. Let's read that. It says here, I ask on their behalf, verse 9, or on verse 9, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All things that are mine are mine, and thine are mine, and I've been glorified in them, and I am no more in the world, and yet they, yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father of Binu, keep them in thy name, there's the name again, that, uh, that name issue. Holy Father, keep them in thy name, the name which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in thy name, which you gave me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy made full in themselves. I've given them the world, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've also sent them in the world for their sakes. I sanctify myself that they themselves all may be sanctified in the truth. So here we see that Yeshua is praying for these disciples. He says here very clearly that uh, just as the world is going, has misunderstood Yeshua, is he sending them out into the world, that they are going to be misunderstood as well. And there's two ways that he talks about them being sanctified. They're going to be sanctified through the word, and they're going to be sanctified through the work of Yeshua, what he's about to do, being set apart for God's purposes. Now, it's interesting that he says here that he prays for them to be protected from the evil one. Uh, interesting indeed. And, you know, uh, that is something we don't want to look over. Just as he is praying here for them, you know, he prays uh, for them to be protected. Now, something I really want to discuss here in this chapter is this issue of where he says here in verse 
19, I'm sorry, verse 20 to 21. We're going to really spend some time on this. He says here, I do not ask you, and verse 20 says, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may also be one, even as you, Father, in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe you sent me. Now, oh, that word Trinity. I know we love that word Trinity of Beth Messiah. That's a word that a lot of people uh, think it doesn't have a lot of Jewish flavor to it, right? Trinity. Uh, not Words not in the Bible. But, you know, it's very interesting that Yeshua, when he speaks here, he talks about what the nature of God is like. He's talking here, he says he wants the, uh, the disciples to be one because that represents who God is. Because, you see, in God's nature, you know, you may not be able to totally comprehend this, uh, but you can apprehend it. You have Father, Avinu, you have the Son, and you have the Ruach, the Spirit, and there is a perfect, harmonious relationship between all three members. And so that probably means, I assume, that when the Father, who's a sender, decided to send the Son into the world, that the Son didn't go back to the Father and say, I don't want to go. I don't want to do that. We're going to have an argument about that. And then when the son was talking about sending the Ruach in John 16, which we read today, I really doubt the Ruach said to the son, no, I don't want to be sent by you. Nope, I don't want to do it. Let's argue about it. No, there is a perfect harmonious relationship in the nature of God. I have a quote here from an author. This is what he says. He said, in this relationship, the three persons, the father, the son, and the spirit, love one another support one another, assist one another, team with one another, honor one another, communicate with one another, and in everything respect and enjoy one another. They are in need of nothing but each other throughout all eternity, such as the richness and the fullness and the completion of the social relationship that exists in, the, in this dynamic relationship. If we as believers are thus to represent God <coughs> and reflect who he is in our relationship and activities, part of this involves reflecting the ways in which the triune persons relate to one another. As we see the love relationship among the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, we should seek the same kind of love to be expressed among us, God's people. And we see the har harmony expressed amidst differing roles and responsibilities among the members of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We should seek this kind, same harmony as acknowledge our varying giftedness and activities within the body of Yeshua. And as we see thoughtful, judicious authority exercised along with joyful, glad-hearted submissiveness within the nature of God, the Father, Son, the Spirit. He's talking about how the Son submissive to the Father, the Spirit submissive to the Son, etc. We should seek to exemplify these same kind of qualities in our relationship of authority and submission. In short, we should look not only to the character of God and the commands of God, but also to the roles and relationships among the Father, Son, and the Spirit to see what it means to live our lives as His images. We are created to reflect what God is like. Eternal relationality calls for and calls forth a created community of persons. So, there we have it. God is perfectly unified. And boy, uh, why aren't we just disunified in all kinds of places? Lack of unity uh, in our country, a lack of unity 
in uh, people not getting along, a lack of unity in families, a lack of unity sometimes in congregations. But the point of the matter is that, you know, we look around the world and we're so troubled and we can't, I just can't, you know, I just, people, I just, how could they do such a thing? I'm baffled. Well, the reason is, is because they don't know God, okay? They don't know Yeshua. They don't understand the nature of God. We don't, they have no uh, way of really reflecting the nature of God, right? Because they haven't come to know the Lord. And, you know, we need to understand that God's nature is something that we are called to reflect that, that, you know, that unity, right? Now, what is it, though, that, you know, kind of kills uh, this unity issue? Well, now, when I turn to Galatians 5 here, I know what you're going to say. Well, wait a minute, this is about believers. So let's first talk about believers, and then we'll talk about unbelievers. But go to Galatians 5 for a second here. Now, we, you may say to yourself, well, you know, okay, God is perfectly unified and there's perfect harmony, and we're called to reflect that in everything we do, but <clears throat> why is it that that isn't seen, and why is there so much strife, you know, in certain places? Well, uh, first of all, let me go over the issues of our own lives, you know, and such as the family unit, or such as a congregation in general, or just in general relationships with each other. Well, uh, of course, Paul lists the biggest challenge here to reflecting that unity, is in verse uh, Galatians 5, verse 22 to 23 to 24 here. Uh, he says here, I'm sorry, I'm in Ephesians. How dare I do that? I'm like, what am I doing? That is not Galatians 5. I'm in Ephesians 5. Galatians 5. Okay, Galatians 5, it says here in verse uh, 18 on, let's read verse 18 on of Galatians 5. It says here, now if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the Torah, the law, now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I forewarn you, those who practice these things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to the Messiah have crucified the flesh, which is passions and evil desires. So there's no doubt that the biggest challenge to unity is the deeds of the flesh. So as I said last time I filled in for Howard, I think it was the first week when I sat down in the chair and I gave an illustration if we strive to abide in the Messiah and we stay close to him and we're letting him change us or allowing him, cooperating with him to allow us to change us, uh, you know, the deeds of the Spirit here in verse 22 hopefully will be manifested, but we know it's a battle. We don't always walk in the Spirit. You know, some of these uh, issues of the Spirit here, I, I looked at these closer here, it says here in verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, love here is a, a uh, you know, not just a feeling. Uh, it's really about what Paul talks about. It's sometimes just putting on love, right, when we don't feel like it. We love people unconditionally, even when they blow it. Uh, we still love people, and we reflect that love, but we don't feel like being loving. If you base your love on just feelings, then one day you feel 
like you love the person, the other day you don't, or you feel like loving a brother in the Lord, one day you don't. No, it's about an action, right? It's a, uh, an act of love. It's not just static. Joy here is a contentment in the midst of circumstances, a joy and satisfaction in the Lord. Once again, it's not so much uh, based on just, you know, well, my circumstances are controlling me, but in the midst of everything, we're finding that satisfaction in God. Peace, of course, shalom, that wholeness, that completeness that comes when we're abiding in the sign in the midst of circumstances, no matter what they be. We have that peace. Patience, long-suffer, sometimes your translations say <coughs> long-suffering, you know, that's an endurance, that's a uh, willing to persist and walk with God, and of course, being patient with others, right, uh, when it's hard, when we, you know, walking in the Spirit, we can be patient, when it's challenging, of course, kindness, goodness, uh, faithfulness, I'm not going to go so much go over kindness and goodness, but faith and faithfulness go hand in hand, trusting God, right? being faithful to him no matter what. And of course, gentleness and self-control. Self-control is something we all need, whether it be we're about to say something we shouldn't say. We need self-control. Sometimes our tongue destroys relationships or others. We need self-control. Could be with food like me, could be anything. Uh, We have to have self-control. So these are the things, you know, we strive for so that we may reflect the unity of who God is, right, in the midst of our relationships. Now, you may say to yourself, though, well, okay, now what about the world? The world out there, the problems we have, they don't reflect the nature of God. Well, you know, they just don't have any ability because they don't know the Lord. You know, it's interesting with the teens last week, we were going over this uh, issue, we are talking about reconciliation, uh, what that means to us, and I took them to 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul says what he tells the Corinthians, they're ministers of reconciliation. And so I looked at the teens and I said, do you you see yourselves as ministers of reconciliation? And they kind of looked at each other and, you know, they're like, what is that word minister? That sounds like clergy, you know, and I'm not a clergy person. So I said to them, how about we view ourselves as advocates of reconciliation, right? And they said, okay, that sounds better. I like that. I like that. So You know, I was trying to stress to them, you know, in the midst of a fractured culture that we're always called to be agents or advocates of reconciliation, right? That's the goal. And so I think that uh, is something, you know, we want to do. But why is it, though, you know, that uh, some people in the culture, you know, what is one of these the main reasons that they're not able to really reflect this, uh, the way that God is, is nature. You know, what is one of the biggest challenges we have? Well, it just so happens today that, as I was looking at this before I came in here today, that my, our dear brother Henry, who's out of town, uh, posted something that I thought actually had relevance, and I told him, I'm stealing that today, because thank you for giving that to me. Uh, he had translated 2 Corinthians 4.4, and I like what he said here. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 for a minute. And I, I do like the way he has translated this because, you know, we say to ourselves, you know, what is one of the main reasons that people out in our culture don't seem to be able to reflect who God is? You know, this perfect, harmonious rela- unity, right? Why is it they can't seem to do it? And there's so much strife. And I know for most of us, we say, well, it's a fallen world. Sin is in the world. It's the result of the fall. 
things like that. Of course, we know that already. Those are some of the basics of our systematic theology that we've all studied so diligently. But in 2 Corinthians 4, it says here in verse 1, it says here, therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart, but we renounce the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, committing ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, they might not, that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Messiah, who is the very image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Messiah Yeshua as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Yeshua's sake. For God said, let light shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Messiah. Now, Henry uh, translated this this way, and he had time to do it because I didn't, because this text was not on my heart today till I, before I came in. But he says here, this is the way he, uh, he translated Translated 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He says here, Amon whom the God of this age has blinded the reasoning thought processes of the unbelievers in order that they might not see the revealed light of the good news about the glory of the Messiah, who is the image of God. I like that a lot because, you know, the reality of it is that the answer to the world's problems to try to get them to reflect the unity of God is to preach the message of the good news, is verbal proclamation. Lamation. You know, yeah, I mean, we can live it out and we can, uh, you know, be good people and hopefully people look at us and say, what makes you tick? I hope they do that. But the reality of it is that there is power in the verbal proclamation of the good news. But as 2 Corinthians 4 says, the reason a lot of the things are happening in our culture isn't necessarily because of political issues and this and that. It's because we're wrestling against spiritual forces, right? And the God of this age has somewhat blinded the minds of the unbeliever. And so we are called to preach the message of reconciliation to hopefully we'll pull that person out to see the light of the glory of God. And all we can do is keep doing that, right? And God will hopefully remove that blindness so they can start to reflect who God is. So when you go back to John 17, remember when he prays this prayer of unity, for unity for his, um, for his disciples, he's also praying this prayer for future generations, right? He's praying this prayer for the future believers, people who come to faith in Messiah. He says here, uh, you know, that he is praying, I'm trying to find the verse here, but uh, he says here for the future, you know, of people who will come to believe. You know, and that's something that, uh, you know, verse 22, verse 22, look, and the glory which I have given me, I've given to them that they may be one just as we are one, I and them and you and me, they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that you sent me and you love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also that you've given me be with me where I am in order they may behold my glory which you've given me for you've given me for the foundation of the world. So, one thing that we can do certainly to strive for in these troubling times where there's so much 
uh, fracture, there's so many fractured relationships and disunity in our culture and all around us, is to reflect the unity of God in our lives, right? In the relationships we have in our families, in congregations, you know, we reflect who God is when we reflect unity, right? And so that is something we want to be praying for and striving for. And as we abide in the Messiah, hopefully when we take the time to be alone with him and we talk to him and pray to him and we're in the word and we're in discipleship or in community, we will bear the fruit of the spirit and the unity of God will be seen. And may I say this, that one thing that keeps the unity going is keeping the big picture before you. Uh, not always having to have your way. And when you say to yourself, you know, in light of the big picture, I'm going to do the right thing here and I'm not going to be a difficult uh, person and I'm going to realize that the unity of God, the testimony of who God is, is the most important thing here, right? Uh, His nature is at stake. His, uh, who he is, his glory is at stake and I'm going to do the right thing because I want him glorified, right? Right? Just as Yeshua is committed to the Father and His glory, we are committed to the Father's glory as well. So having said that, we will next week look a little more about some practical ways to live in a, uh, as believers in a troubled culture today. But as for now, let's follow Yeshua's example, strive to be unified in our relationships and be shalom makers and be agents of reconciliation and reflect that unity wherever we go. Let's pray. Lord God, we just give thanks to you for Yeshua. We thank you, God, that he offers eternal life, a quality of life that starts today and carries on into eternity. We thank you, God, for his commitment to you, that he, as the sent one, was fully committed to your glory. And we thank you for the example he sets to us. We pray, Lord God, that we would reflect your very nature as you are in perfect unity with each other, the Father, Son, and the Ruach are in perfect unity, that we would reflect that in what we do. And we pray against the work of the enemy who seeks to divide and devour us, and of course seeks to divide and devour the culture. We pray, Lord God, Alvinu, that we would proclaim the good news so that people would have the opportunity to reflect the very nature of God, because that is the solution to the world's problems. And we thank you for this day. In Yeshua's name, amen.